Hi, my name is Autumn Dixon, and this week is May 29th through June 4th. And just to get started with the chapters that we're reading this week, I want to set the scene a little bit. So what we have in this situation that we're reading is Christ is sitting at a table with his disciples. And it's the Passover, which is incredibly symbolic. And this is kind of the last time that Christ is going to be able to sit in peace with them before his agony on the cross and in Gethsemane. It's the last peaceful time he has with them during his mortal life before everything goes crazy. And one of the things that he shares with the group is he chooses to share and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And in the account in John, in John specifically, Peter is the one who asks, well, who's going to betray you? <laughs> What's going to happen, right? Who's going to betray you? And this is the response. So this is John 13, verses 26 through 27. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When I have dipped it. Sorry. A little sick today. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now, none of the disciples caught on to this exchange. Even though Christ had said, it's the person who's going to betray me, I'm going to give them a sop. They didn't really catch on to what happened. And when Judas left, they still didn't catch on to what was happening. Now, this scenario in which Christ offers a sop to Judas it might seem random to some random token that Christ threw out like, oh, this is what's going to happen. And that's the person who's going to betray me. But it's actually more than that. And that's because the SOP itself is significant. So according to the Institute New Testament Manual, a host or hostess could offer a SOP to a guest. Now, a SOP was just a little piece of bread that you could use to scrape up meat out of the bottom of your bowl or whatever was left. So the host could have the sop and offer it to a guest. Now, this was a significant gesture. It wasn't just someone offering you a piece of bread. It was an extension of friendship and respect. It was a really meaningful thing to do. And Judas obviously rejected this extent, this last extension of friendship that Christ offered to him. Now, what happened here, <laughs> right? I want to look at Judas's heart. How did Judas look at the same exact events as all the other apostles, but see them in a completely different light? He saw the same exact things that were happening. He saw the same things, but they were seeing them in completely different lights. And that happens today too. Some people look at the church and they see so much evidence of how the Lord is leading the church. Other people look at the church and they see a completely corrupt institution. Some people face heartache and they see a lesson and they find peace and other people find nothing but bitterness, right? How do people 
look at the same exact thing and come to completely different conclusions about it. Now, there's something in here that we can learn from Judas about where his heart ended up and how things got to where they were. It's important to note that the apostles did not realize what was going on with Judas. So also John 13, this is verses 28 through 29. It says, now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. So Christ was like, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. It says nobody knew why Christ did that. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, which was the money, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So the apostles completely missed this vital exchange in which Judas was the one who was going to betray Christ and that he was leaving the Passover to literally go and betray Christ. And I think it's important to note this because... To me, this indicates that Judas had not come out in active opposition against Christ. That whatever happened to lead Judas up to this point, it had all occurred in his heart. He hadn't started speaking out and because the apostles completely missed it. This change in Judas had happened so quietly that only Christ knew that the change had occurred at all. Only Christ knew. None of the apostles knew. It was something that had happened in Judas's heart. Now, King Benjamin of the Book of Mormon teaches us that we need to watch ourselves and our thoughts. And I think this is because our thoughts are very empower, very powerful tools that can be used for us or against us. <laughs> <clears throat> now, in therapy, when you go to a therapy appointment for mental health, one of the things they often talk about, and I'm sure that this is not every time with every single person who's ever been to therapy, but I have heard this consistently through lots of people have been. One of the things that they teach you in therapy is that your thoughts do not necessarily define who you are. So if you have this really negative thought come in, and it says something really ugly about yourself, you just look at that thought and you're like, oh, there it is. And then you can look at it non-judgmentally and you can just let it pass, right? You are taught in therapy that you can control your thoughts and train them to align with your values, right? So when a thought pops into your mind, you just look at it, you can observe it, Right? And see whether it is a thought that you believe or whether you need to kick it out because it doesn't actually align with who you are. I think it's fascinating that King Benjamin taught this a long time ago in the Book of Mormon to watch our thoughts, to observe them, to look at them. What are these thoughts telling us? And do we believe them? Why do we believe these thoughts that are coming into our mind? What evidence is there that our thoughts are correct? When, going back to the example of Judas, when did his thoughts begin to turn, right? When did they start to come in and trickle in? And when did Judas begin to tell himself a story about who Christ was? Because I'm convinced, <laughs> I obviously could be wrong, but I'm convinced that if Judas really knew who Christ was, 
if he hadn't told himself some story about who Christ was, if Judas had known and been able to accept the love that Christ wanted to give him, I can't imagine that he would have been able to betray Christ, right? Just out of sheer self-preservation, I can't imagine that he would have been willing to betray Christ. It's completely beyond me. And so in my mind, Judas had to have told himself a story about Christ in his mind. That thoughts had come in and he had accepted them as fact rather than watching them and observing them and asking them if they were true. Now, we don't know when this occurred. We don't know when his thoughts started to turn. It could have been, so Judas held the purse, right? He held all of money. He was the treasurer of the group, right? Maybe he saw different financial decisions that Christ was making and he had started to be like, whoa, like, why are you doing it like that? Or why are you stepping on my toes? Why can't I control the money? You're selfish, right? We know that with Mary, Mary went and used this really expensive ointment on Christ And we know exactly how Judas felt about that. Like, why wasn't this taken and given to the poor, right? And he, in his mind, had told himself that Christ was self-aggrandizing, right? That Christ thought he was so great and needed to be honored in that same way. What if Judas had watched his thoughts? What if he had seen these thoughts come in, these original thoughts, and he had questioned them? Like, is this really true? Like, is this thought legitimate? Why do I believe this thought Should I believe this thought, right? And what if he had asked himself about these thoughts? What if instead of seeing this waste with Mary and Christ, what if he had taken a second and paused and he had observed the interaction and gotten rid of this other judgmental thought and he looked at them, looked for evidence, and he had seen the love that it wasn't Christ being like, I'm amazing, worship me but that he, that Christ was loving Mary and that he was so grateful to Mary, right? What if Judas had pushed his thought away or just like placed it to the side? He didn't even necessarily need to throw it out, right? Because he's observing this thought. He's trying to see whether it's true. What if he had just set it to the side a little bit and observed to find evidence of whether his thought was true? Let's look at the stop example, right? So when Christ offers this extension of friendship. What was Judas thinking? I don't know how Judas was thinking. (laughs) But one of the thoughts that came to me is Christ offers Judas a sop. And I can, I wonder, wonder, not not wonder, if Judas was like, like, are you serious? (laughs) Like you're going to tell everybody that the person who's going to betray you is the one that you're going to give a sop to. And then you give me a sop. Like, why are you pretending to care about me? Like, why are you giving me this extension of friendship? Why are you pretending to be my friend and calling me out in front of everybody? Right. Telling himself a story that it wasn't actually Christ trying to offer him one last chance of friendship. What if Judas had taken that thought that came in like, oh, Christ is just calling me out in front of everybody. What if he had set that thought aside and watched it and had asked himself, is this thought true? Is this really what's occurring right now? What if he had looked into the eyes of the Savior to see how Christ really felt about him? 
And if he had looked into Christ's eyes and if he had seen that love, would he have been able to betray Christ? Right? We all know that that was necessary, that Christ had to be betrayed. But if Judas had known how Jesus felt about him and had looked in his eyes, would Judas have been the one to betray him? Now, whenever we come across a situation where we have negative thoughts, where a negative judgment comes in, negative thought comes about a situation, we don't have to dispel it immediately. In fact, that would probably be really unwise, right? You're standing in front of a hungry lion and you're like, oh, he's going to eat me, right? You probably shouldn't push that thought aside and be like, no, he's probably a nice lion, right? No, it would be unwise to dispel all negative thoughts immediately. There's a reason we have faculties of mind. Rather, obviously not in dangerous circumstances like a lion, but rather, when we have thoughts come in that are negative about a situation, we can recognize them as the fallible thoughts of a fallible person, as thoughts that may not actually align with what we believe or what our values are. And when the situation calls for it, we can look closer We can examine closer. We can look for evidence and look closer. Now, when I say examine the situation further and to look closer, some people might take this as advice to take something that they've found negative and to hyper-focus on it, right? Whether that's an aspect of church history or a doctrine or perceived flaw in the church, right, to look at it to hyper-focus on it and to keep telling your story, like the story in your head about whatever it is. Judas could have done the same thing, right? In that moment, when he's offered that sop, he could have like looked back at everything that had occurred with Christ, all of the events, and he could have chosen to hyper-focus on all of those events. And he could have told himself the same exact story about all of those events. What I'm actually saying, when I say to examine closer and to look closer, What I really mean is what I was talking about with Judas is to look for Christ, to look to see if there's love there. Because I'm convinced that no matter what story we've told ourselves or what doubts we've run into, I'm convinced that if we look for the Savior's love, we will find it. And when we find it and when you feel the kind of love that comes from Christ, it changes you. You experience a peace that you're going to be okay, that everybody is going to be okay, that Christ is going to take care of everyone through his atonement. And this perceived flaw, this history, it just becomes quieter because you know Christ is going to take care of it, even though you don't have the answers to everything yet. Now, what does it look like to look for Christ and his love? It's easy to say that, but what does that really look like? There's probably a million ways that you can look for Christ and his love. This is just one way that I do it. Let's look at the example of polygamy, right? Because polygamy is a painful topic for many. Let's look at polygamy. What is the real issue with polygamy? What story are we telling ourselves? What thoughts are coming to our mind about what polygamy in the church meant? Now, are we telling ourselves, oh, this is evidence that we are second class, that women are second class citizens in heaven, that Christ and Heavenly Father don't actually 
love and value us, that we are only valuable to the extent that we can have children, right? These thoughts are coming in and we can examine closer. And when I say we examine closer, I'm not saying that you have to turn a blind eye to scary thoughts. Because once again, I don't think that's necessarily wise, right? Trying to push all the doubts into the back of your mind. Because polygamy has been used, I'm not saying in the church, polygamy has been used throughout history as a means of controlling women, right? There are grounds for this fear. And so you don't have to turn a blind eye to it. Rather, observe the thought, observe the story that you're that you're telling about polygamy that's happened in the church and recognize that it could be a fallible judgment. In order for Judas to look into the eyes of the savior and look when he was like, look when Judas, when Christ, <laughs> when Christ offered the sop, Judas did not need to abandon everything that he had told himself about Christ in order to look in Christ's eyes and see if there was love there. We don't have to necessarily abandon these fears. In fact, I would say the opposite. I would say that we look to Christ. We pray to our Heavenly Father. We pour out exactly how we're feeling about whatever it is that's bothering us. We tell him exactly how we feel. Everything. You don't have to hold back. Heavenly Father already knows how you feel about it. He probably knows how you feel about it better than you know how you feel about it. So to pour that out, to own it, and then to ask to see reality, right? Because whatever's occurring, we are fallible people with fallible thoughts. And there is a truth about these things. There is a reality. And we can ask our Heavenly Father to show us the reality of what's occurring. And then after you have done this, after you have prayed and told Heavenly Father exactly how you feel about things, and after you've asked to see things as they really are, you have to open an avenue for a response. (laughs) Read your scriptures, listen to a conference talk, ponder, sit there for a minute, (laughs) listen to some uplifting music, Open an avenue for your Heavenly Father to respond to you after you've poured out your heart. I have heard plenty of times the story, like stories where people are like, I was praying and as soon as I started praying about it, I just felt all this peace wash over me, right? And I've experienced that before, like once. (laughs) And I just feel like I need to say that that is the exception, not the rule, Normally, when you pray about something that you're struggling with, you have to be able to open yourself up to get the response, right? To listen for the response. It doesn't automatically just descend upon you, usually. That is the exception, not the rule. And then also to prepare yourself to be patient for a little while. Because it's not necessarily that Heavenly Father wants to keep His answer or His love away from you. But sometimes we have to be prepared to receive the answer. And if we're really worked up about a story that we've been telling ourselves, sometimes we have to be prepared and taken care of for a little while and to be quieted a little while before Heavenly Father can actually give a response that we can hear and understand and accept.
if you're struggling with something in the church, you don't have to get rid of those doubts or throw them away or pretend that they're not there. But I would ask you to pray and ask your Heavenly Father if you matter to Him. Pray and ask if the pains of everyone who's lived on this earth, if they can be healed by a Savior's atonement. Ask if there is a happy ending available to everybody who's ever lived on the planet because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And when you receive that answer, and if you choose to trust that answer, that he loves you and that he loves everybody around you, and that he's going to take care of everything, all of the mistakes that happened, all of the evil byproducts that come as a result of agency. If you choose to hold on to his love and the fact that he has the power to take care of everything, you will feel the ability to be patient until everything is revealed, until the happy ending does come and you'll be able to hold on. I'm grateful for a savior who works with us so individually. I'm grateful that he answers us when we're ready for the answer, that he doesn't just say that we pray and say, what's going on? He tells us he loves us, but we're not prepared to receive it. And he's like, well, I told you that's, that's on you, right? I'm grateful that he works with us in ways that we can't see to help us step along towards him. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.